Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, a writer at Gay Star News, and I am joined, as always, by my two fabulous co-hosts. I am Hoi Chen Bui, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I am Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. So our episode today will be an appreciation of all of the people and workers below the line in the movie industry. So this includes cinematographers, editors, composers, all of that ilk. Um, I'm going to throw it to Willoughby because this is his uh, topic, close, this is a topic close to his heart, and uh, he can speak on it much more eloquently than me. Willoughby, please tell us about our topic this week. Oh, I, I hope I can be as eloquent as you, HD. Mm-hmm. I am a little under the weather, so my voice is a little uh, a little more bass than normal. We're um, going to be an ASMR podcast today, guys. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the ASMR podcast mm-hmm. version of the Millennial Falcon. It's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. No, um, so basically, uh, I went to school for film production. Like, I spent a lot of time and money to know what I'm talking about. In this episode, so hopefully I do a good job at it. Um, th- I like to kind of break down film by its key components, which is like, like the visuals, the sounds, and like that's kind of it. I mean, I mean, and the acting, like that. But we've talked about actors a lot on this podcast. Um, this time we're going to be talking about, um, like you said, below the line. The people who are not billed first in the credits, you know, they're billed kind of in the middle or at the end, um, they're unsung heroes. They're the ones that get on the, all the technical Oscars and all the Oscars right before all the acting awards. Um, and so we're going to break it down by uh, cinematography, which is how the movie is filmed. So, like, the framing and the colors, you know, color, colors and light, that's essentially what cinematography is. Colors, light, and framing. Um, editing, which is the timing of shots and how many shots are used and to quicken the pace, to slow it down, montages, editing is basically like the time. Um, and then cinematography is the space. So it's it's the space time continuum of movies making. And then we also are going to talk about composers. So basically the music makers, the John Williamses, the Michael Giacchino's, the, uh, Hans Zimmer's, all those guys, um, they are amazing, and I've listened to so many soundtracks over my lifetime that, like, it's, there's so much music embedded in my, in my, in my heart and in my head, you know, like, the moment you hear any of John Williams' signature themes, like, my heart flutters, it's all a Twitter, Um, (laughs) so, that's kind of it, um, I, I, I was thinking we could talk about either, like, our favorite movies or our favorite cinematographers or, like, you know, kind of like, you know, we can break it down by movie or break it down by specific person. Like, I know that we have certain cinematographers in our lives that are very near and dear to our hearts, um, but editing might not be so, like, identifiable. But I do have a couple of movies that are really, like, the editing in. And um, so we could talk about all of this stuff. Um, I feel like Mad Max Fury Road is going to come up a lot because mm, yes. it was one of my, <laughs> more, my it, A, it won a lot of Oscars at the 2016 Oscars, and B, it is very deserving of all those uh, mm-hmm. editing and cinematography yeah. awards. So are we, let's, we're breaking it up between, kind of between careers. Talk about our cinematographers first, editors, composers. Yeah, why don't we do it like that? All right. Um, so uh, why don't we start with Anya? Anya, what do you like about cinematography? Roger Deakins. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is well known that I am a stan for Roger Deakins. Um, I think he is one of the greatest living cinematographers of all time. Um, he's been nominated for an absurd amount of Oscars, definitely in the double digits, and he has never won. Always a bridesmaid. Yep. And it is a crime because his work is absolutely stunning. Um, he's done a lot of, of the Coen Brother films. Um, that's a big one that he's worked with. Um, he's also become a collaborator with Deli, Denny Villeneuve. So he just did Blade Runner 2049. And um, he's done, he did Arrival. 
Uh, no, that was actually Bradford Young. Oh, it wasn't Roger Deakin. Whoops. Yeah, no. My bad. But it was, uh, it's, very, it's, it's very similar, like, silhouettes and whatnot, but no, that was Bradford mm. Young, who's now doing the uh, solo uh, Star Wars story. <laughs> well, he's done other <laughs> villain movies. He did Sicario. He did Prisoners. Um, he also did Skyfall. One of my favorite that he did with the Coen brothers, um, I love his cinematography and True Grit. I think it's, oh, it's so stunning. Um, I just think he really knows... He's just so meticulous about his camera work and how to frame a shot, and he just makes it look makes everything look lush and gorgeous, even if it's you know not like a big landscape shot or anything. It still looks beautiful, um, and I want him to get his damn Oscar. I think you will with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I feel like there's no other film this year with that that bombacity of cinematography. Like, it, would, it would be interesting if he won for Blade Runner 2049, because I feel like that would be a first for the Oscars to award a genre movie, um, one of the kind of big five uh, awards, essentially. Yeah. I think Gravity, I think Emmanuel Lubezki Yeah, Gravity. I feel like you're probably mm, right. Gravity mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's a genre film, but it's also just like a film set in space. It's not really... You know, it's hard to t- classify what gravity is because it's not genre specific. I guess mm-hmm. it's a. I mean, it kind of has all the um, the pillars of science fiction because it is set in space, but it is mostly just a a character story and kind of like a a bottle episode in a way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So here's hoping that next year is finally Roger Deakins year i am obsessed with him um there are other cinematographers i love but none as much as ronda deacons so what about you guys um like i just said emmanuel lubezki is probably my favorite cinematographer i just love the way he uses the the film camera as a almost a second like another character um he loves tracking shots and single take shots that will you know just kind of linger on everything and uh, particularly in the movie Itumama Tambien like the the camera definitely becomes like a fourth character Mm -hmm. in the story of these two best friends and the woman they take on this road trip uh the the way the camera pans to other things happening outside of the point of view of the characters and realizing that there's a bigger world than just what these uh, guys are going through in their lives um, and then bring it back to their characters um, and just the way that it all kind of coalesces together. Um, his work on Birdman is extraordinary. The way the fact that he has to, he had to light an entire theater and then and also outside. Like, I know they, they obviously didn't film everything in one take. Like, that's impossible. But the fact that they did it so well to make it look like it was filmed in one take... I think he he definitely um, deserved an Oscar for that. Um, his work on The Revenant is a little weird. I don't think it's his best work. It's not. Um, yeah, the whole the whole uh, thing with The Revenant kind of felt like a gimmick because you know they only shot in natural daylight, which is a challenge in and of itself, but isn't um, it isn't a uh, indicator of the movie's quality yes, or anything. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that there's some interesting shots that are done, but I also think that there's a lot of a lot more CGI in that movie than I anticipated. I was like, "Ooh, that doesn't look that's not real." Um but uh just the way that uh I love the way that his camera is very fluid. Uh Tree of Life, which I do not like as a movie, he shot and I think it's it's a beautiful movie, but it, only in terms of its visuals like uh, like you could I could fall asleep watching that movie like in fact I have fallen asleep watching that movie twice uh, <laughs> and it's just because it's so lush and gorgeous and really there's nothing left like in terms of like what's Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain doing I don't know um, mm. and so and like the I don't know how much work he had with, when it came to like the actual like creation of, of the world with the Big Bang Theory, the Big Bang uh, montage, but I mean if he like helped do like the art direction for that, that'd be amazing. Um, but yeah, Emmanuel Lubezki is probably my my favorite. I also I want to point out a couple movies that I really love the cinematography for, like Drive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that has excellent cinematography uh, of showcasing Los Angeles as well as in like how to like film inside of a car and make it look beautiful. And I think he does, whoever the cinematographer I can't remember, but whoever does that for Drive is amazing. Um, and then um, I think uh, yeah, Roger Deakins is also one of my favorites, uh, and I love the way that he films silhouettes. And you know, you guys, that's like his like signature trademark. And I think it's all it's just I love looking at film. I love looking at the way that these guys and girls and women and men just look at color and light and then transfer it to uh, the screen. So I have a question. Yeah, I have a question for both of you. Um, how much do you guys separate the cinematographer's vision uh, versus a director's vision? So we have like these great cinematographers who stand apart from the rest, but are they are they unique because of their own special, distinct style, or is it because they can cater to a director's vision as much as as well as they can? Because um, we talked a little bit about auteur theory, theory and whether it's real or not, and a lot of that auteur theory um, becomes uh, sort of credited towards the director, but, you know, it's a it's a big uh, collaborative experience. So at what point does, like, this, that cinematographer and, um, like, kind of stand apart and become distinct? I think it's a balance. I think a director can have a lot of input on how shots look and how they're framed, um, but the cinematographer can also take the reins on that. I feel like with more profound and prolific uh, cinematographers, the directors will, like, they know what the cinematographer can do. So, like, if you've ever watched any Roger Deakins, like, shot films, you can kind of, like, point out, like, oh, that's a Roger Deakins shot, or, like, that's a Roger Deakins, like, like, that it's definitely shot by him. Um, Whereas that's... Whereas sometimes you're like, oh, that's a Christopher Nolan movie, or that's a Spielberg move. Like, that's it's kind of interesting how we we do kind of take for granted like um, cinematographers because we kind of just put it all at the at the like congratulatory win for the director. Like um, Steven Spielberg has had a lot has like had like three or four cinematographers over the course of his. Uh, um, filmography and you can kind of see that there's a difference between like his like action adventure movies and then his like historical pictures um and they're de- they're shot differently they're shot more beautifully when it comes to um his like like Lincoln or um oh, Birds of Spies like those movies look different than like Indiana Jones yeah. or Jaws um obviously those are earlier in his career but like it's clear that there's a difference in cinematography but his direction there i think direction like a lot of like directors obviously like they direct the actors they direct everything but um i think when it comes to the below the line people like it's very collaborative and we don't always um say that it is um but you've got cinematographers who can make their mark it may not always be the case you know sometimes the directors will take over or they'll have you know they'll have a vision that the cinematographer may not have and that they just point the camera um you know yeah i think it is collaborative like you're saying willoughby um however i do think there is an extent that the cinematographers are serving the director's vision Mm -hmm. um i mean i don't think you're ever going to find a cinematographer uh who's hired who has a completely different, like, vision for the movie that the director is making. Um, And I think, you know, I think it's definitely, like, they bring their own ideas and their own talents and their own skills, um, but they are ultimately serving, like, this greater narrative um, that I guess everyone is serving, really. Like, the director even is um, almost subservient to his own or to his or her own narrative Mm -hmm. um, that they want to tell. And I think if you look at one of my favorite visual directors is Joe Wright um, because he's so lush and gorgeous and if you look at his probably his three best films and also his three most like just visually stunning films which would be Pride and Prejudice Atonement and Anna Karenina he used two different cinematographers for those so Seamus McGarvey did Anna Karenina and Atonement um, and a cinematographer named Roman Osen did Pride and Prejudice so you have two different cinematographers, but the films still very much feel like Joe Wright films, mm-hmm. and they feel just very, um, their wide shots 
are gorgeous and just so stunning and they kind of wash over you and that I think is definitely a sign of Joe Wright having a vision for the films that he's making and he and the cinematographer collaborating to make those really beautiful shots. Yeah, because for me, I have I appreciate cinematographers, but I don't have that particular sort of um, sense of loyalty to them as I do directors, I guess I would say. Like, I would not go to see a movie simply because it's a Roger Deakins movie. I would probably be pleasantly surprised that's a Roger Deakins movie at the end or re- recognize his uh, sort of quirks or uh, visual trademarks throughout the film. Blade Runner 2049 is a huge example of that. Every frame... It really lives up to that whole every frame of painting sort of um, Yeah, mantra. one perfect shot, the Twitter yeah. account is just going to have, like, every frame literally, like, in its in that Twitter queue for, like, years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, for example, I thought there's this really great video essay um, recently about David Fincher's uh, visual directing style. Oh, it's so good. And I'm not sure, like, who his cinematographer is or whether he has, like, a cinematographer that he regularly uh, collaborates with, but I'm, I find it really interesting that he has such this meticulous, um, steadfast vision for every one of his films, um, in which, in this video essay, uh, the camera moves basically with every single movement of the main character that you're supposed to be concentrating on, so it becomes like a, you're being thrust into their perspective uh, the entire time. It's very interesting, and like the fact that just like a neck movement or an, a glance across the screen can warrant a camera movement is really fascinating and feels more of like a cinematography move than simply a directorial move. So I kind of sometimes wonder like where that line is blurred um, and where at what point do like directors become simply like visual directors uh, who are just like um, just as well known for their cinematography styles, just like Fincher, for example, or Joe Wright. Well, I think I think it comes back to the fact that this is a collaborative medium. Film is very collaborative. Like auteur theory may may not exist. We you know it's all about the debate. But I, you can't take away the fact that the director has to work with the cinematographer on set, the composer, the editor, the sound designer, the sound mixer. You know all these people that are part of a film. It's not like you're Steven Soderbergh just making movies by yourself. Like most of the time, it's with a team of people, and they're collaborative. And I think that the David Fincher uh, visual style is the like a perfect blend of the director having a vision and the cinematographer able to execute that vision. Yeah, because exactly. It's it's not the director behind the camera doing the motions. It's a cinematographer or cameraman, like. Perfect, perfecting his vision of, like, oh, you want the camera to move along with Mark Zuckerberg as he goes down the stairs? We have to do it 80 times, but I think you can do it. And then the cinematographer executes that vision and does it 80 times, and they do it well, and they get the take, and then they, they can move on. I think that it's very much a, uh, like, a blend. Like, they're... Like, the, the cinematographer may have more distinct visual styles, but I, but I think, like, a director can also have visual styles like david fincher's movies are gorgeously lit but they're and they're always gorgeously lit like it, he ha, he has a vision over m- many many movies like you can point out to any film of his and be like oh that's a david fincher film because it has like that kind of like like every frame has like a glow about it or like a, a color like uh the um social network is very blues and yellows and then Zodiac is very greens and yellows. And then um, Gone Girl is very grays and blues. So, like, there's a lot. And then his new show, Mindhunter, it's very the same, like, kind of, like, almost, like, uh, desaturated, but also, like, at the same time, like, like almost, like, monochromatic in its color. Yeah. Do you have any favorite um, cinematographers, HT, before we move on to our next? I know you said you don't really like... Any favorite movies that you really like their cin- yeah. like the cinematography of? Um, well, I do love Guillermo del Toro's, uh, films, of course, but again, that's someone that, that's the films that I kind of associate with his directing style and just how lush and visually stunning they are. They always kind of appeal to this fantastical element and it's incredibly, um, I guess theatrical in a way. It's very theatrical. Yeah. It really makes full use of it, of like that cinematic, 
um, appeal. So that's what I love about Del Toro's thing. It, he like captures this sort of childlike imagination, turns it into like this twisted fanta- fantasy, and that's what I love about his films. Awesome. Same. Great. Also hard. Same. Yeah. Um. So let's move on to editors. So Willoughby, tell us a little bit about editors. So, editing is a real trick. Like you really can't just do it. You kind of have to be trained. You kind of have to have like a an eye for it. You kind of have to have the timing for it. It's all about having good timing and understanding where where characters are placed in a shot, and then taking those raw that raw footage and literally editing it, editing it down to um, the way that the director wants, the way that it's supposed to be written. Um, you know, taking out all the all the extra stuff that doesn't need to be in the shot or the um, like the like before and after of like when the director says cut, you know, like it may be a few moments before the actor speaks and then you have to go in and you have to get rid of that moment. Um, and it's all about like you know, with editing you basically time the movie out. You can make shots as long as you need them to be, as if you have the footage for it or as short as they need to be. And then there's also the montage, which is a, which is like uh, a key element in editing. Like, how do you go from like Rocky Four, like he doesn't know how to defeat Ivan Drago, and then there's a '80s montage. Like we talked about, we talked about the '80s montage. Like that's a, a like an ed, like an editor's thing. Like you go, you show like bits and pieces of a story, and you compress it into like a four minute montage instead of like days and days of like training for like defeating Ivan Drago. Um, I think a key movie that I'd like to point out with editing was Whiplash. Um, the editing in that movie is stunning. It's timed to the music so well, and so it's so well done that the first time I saw the movie, I was, like, blown away just by the editing of it. Like, the fact that, like, it cuts on uh, the music so well. Like, whoever is whoever edited the movie knows music. Like, that's key to I think a good editor is like having the ability to time things out and see how things work um and like making sure that there's no dead air dead space or or the reverse of that like there could be moments where there has to be like dead air where two two characters are just looking at each other you know like and and like that is like timed out and edited to be like a tense moment like I love Quentin Tarantino's editing because he does a lot of long takes and the editing is so well done because like you you think that he's gonna cut and then he doesn't or the reverse like he cuts away before moments are done like it's so like ingenious like the inglorious bastards opening scene is like a great like it's like the tension is built by the editing. Anya looks like she's want to say okay. something. So I'll take it away. So, Anya, take okay. it away. No, so Tarantino is specifically what I wanted to bring up. Um, and to not give all the credit to Tarantino because Tarantino worked with one editor his entire career until the untimely until her untimely death um, in 2010, uh, where she passed away very unexpectedly. Um, and her name was Sally Menke, and he worked with only her. She was his only editor his entire career up until 2010 and I think it shows in its films I think it's a huge reason why I love his films and why his films are so like you can tell they're Tarantino films and I think she's a really important factor in his work um and I just love she's you know um similar to a lot of things where we're like, I don't know all the names of all the editors and films, but Sally Menke right, is right. one that I do know and that I've loved her work. Um, and I think, like you're talking about with Tarantino, like, her editing in Tarantino films is nothing short of brilliant. Um, I do want to point out that um, uh, the editing in Tarantino's films is very heavily influenced by, like, the French New Wave mm-hmm. sort of cacophonous, jarring editing, and I think editing is a really interesting sort of has an interesting history in Hollywood because uh, throughout the beginning of the sort of age of of cinema, uh, movies were often shot like plays. It was basically on like one set, and there was very minimal editing. And as editing evolved with film, it became sort of like an, an invisible 
uh, element of the film. You it directed the um, the audience's gaze and how they're supposed to follow the story, but it was meant to be almost entirely invisible and not noticeable. But we start to see more like sort of revolutionary editing techniques uh, throughout the 60s and 70s with the rise of French New Wave and sort of trying to upend that sort of a classic Hollywood narrative, and that's why today we see such and more more of an emphasis on editing and more of an interest in editing because it's both invisible and something that's incredibly uh, visible. If you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, no, it's very true. Like if you look, like like I when when I was studying film, they basically said like a bad edit will be very noticeable. It's like a bad bad sound cut, bad mm-hmm. sound cue. Like you know, it's supposed to be invisible but i think you can also have a style to your editing like with um uh what, sally Mankey, yeah you said um like she had like in the way that she works in tarantino's films to create tension and to create drama just by using the takes that he shot he shot months prior to you know um and you know you can take um like it's all about the flow of the movie, and one wrong take can kind of th- can literally throw you out of the movie. You're like, oh wait a minute, I just that that didn't sound that didn't look right. That wasn't. It's all about continuity, you know. So like, if you see one thing and then it cuts to another thing and then it cuts back and suddenly Iron Man doesn't have his mask on when he did in the prior shot that he was in, that's a bad take. Um, I would, I'm not pointing out anything specific. That's just like, like an example. Like if you're watching a movie and you notice something is wrong. <laughs> that's a bad edit like that's like usually unless it's supposed to be that way unless it's supposed to be like a french new wave film where things are you know cut up um you know non-linearly or like they're they're you know uh jump cuts jump cuts are a huge thing in french new wave and that became like a thing for um new hollywood to do and then like you know it just it's just become part of like the motion there's also like um a lot like uh, L cuts where you you hear the sound of the next scene before the the uh, visual moves to the next scene to the next cut um, or like you'll be like hearing like there's two men out in a park and suddenly you hear a conversation of like a woman speaking to another woman and you're like wait a minute and then it cuts to the woman speaking to another woman like that's an L cut. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do in cinemata in editing to move the story along and to keep your focus on where you need to focus. So like all like it's hard to point out these individual ideas in cinema without referencing other things because I think we keep going back to this film as a very collaborative medium. So like you can't edit a movie without the cinematographer and you can't make a finished product without a composer or you can't and you can't do any of it without a director or a writer and so like and the sound mixer and a sound designer so like all these key elements of a film matter to the film and i think that that it's important to not forget them um because we do and it's it can be a problem like that's what i love about the movie hugo it's a love letter to cinema and it's early at its early iteration of a very collaborative medium like they're in a greenhouse and they're making film and then they go back and they cut it together and they do wondrous things that you can't imagine doing in real life like cutting someone's head off and then they're dancing around with their own head like that's a thing that you know George Melies did and like the whole voyage to the moon is a huge leap in editing you know it tells a story you can't tell just by showing it as a play uh, or you could, but it would be very different. And it would, the way that they're able to do it is that you're able to cut and use like special effects to take people from the Earth to the Moon, and use cinematography tricks and use editing tricks to make you believe in that. And that's what cinema is. It's make believe. Yeah. That's all. It, like that's all it is. It's 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 we're, it's pictures and sound moving in tandem to bring you joy and experience. I think drama. we should also um, real quick just give a shout out to. Uh, Margaret Sixel, who did the editing for Mad Max Fury Road. Will, we mentioned this film at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Um, but all its below-the-line stuff is incredible. That's why it's won all the Oscars, as will be said. And most notably, a lot of the below-the-line people in Mad Max Fury Road are women. Um, and Margaret Sixel yeah. is actually yeah. uh, George Miller's wife, and she's worked on him with several of his films. Um, 
I also want to say, um, historically, uh, a lot of editors have been women. Uh, George Melies' wife was, uh, I think, an editor? No, I think George Melies was the editor in his films, but um, Hitchcock's wife was his editor for a lot of his films, and um, that was the case with Tarantino, as you saw, and with Mad Max. Yeah, and I so think it's, it's very important. Cool. And it, it's referenced in, in, like, movies about older Hollywood. They show, like, the, like women editing in the back room. Um, I think oh. in Hail Caesar... The uh, Francis Dorman plays a female editor, and she's like doing her thing, and she's like super confident at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like it's kind of like pointing out that like a lot of uh, like older generations, uh, we kind of think it's all boys' club, and it, I mean it was, but there's also a lot of women doing a lot of jobs, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't get the credit for it. Very true. Very true. So let's use that to move on to the last uh, part of the below the line topics which is composers and um, these are are the people who compose the movie soundtracks and the scores for the film Uh, it's different than actually soundtracks because soundtracks you generally think of like the pop song or the theme song to a movie but scores are the classical scores that um, underline and uh, build up to every scene in a film. Uh, they're very essential in horror movies, for example, in which they guide your emotional um, journey and kind of build that suspense. So, uh, Willoughby, tell us a little bit about scores. Well, I mean, if you've ever heard any music by John Williams, you'll recognize the leitmotif, or leitmotif, um, which is the theme of a character or, a, or, a, or like a location um, you've got like the Force theme, which is used out for Jedi as well, particularly Luke Skywalker. You've got the the Darth Vader march that you hear. Um, you know, like these. That, that's just like one aspect of compo- of of the score for a movie is doing the leitmotif of like a signature character or a, a location. Um, but most of the time, it's about generating the mood and generating the feel of the of the movie. Um, you know, John Williams likes to use brass instruments to kind of have, like, uh, a very, like, theatrical performance in his scores, like, and they're very, like, um, like, Indiana Jones theme and Superman, like, they're very trumpet-heavy, and that's one of the reasons I jo- played the trumpet in uh, middle school and high school, <laughs> so I can play his themes. Uh, um, no, literally, that was the reason why. Um, and then, uh, but then you have other composers like Hans Zimmer, who is very percussive heavy. Like he uses a lot of drums and he uses a lot of piano and a lot of like non-mouth um, using instruments, like a lot of a lot of violins and a lot of like cellos and um, a lot of uh, guitars. He uses he has a lot of guitars and a lot of drums, a lot of um, percussive percussion instruments. Um, and also synthesizers. He loves using synthesizers. Um, and then you've got, like, Michael Giacchino, who uh, ha- loves using woodwinds and loves, like, bringing out the... And those, you can kind of... He always tries to punch you in the gut with uh, his music. Like, I can't listen to the Lost score without crying. Like, it's so... And, like, so and like the Up score, uh, the yes. score for the movie Up, he did that. He mm-hmm. did those first nine minutes, which it's all... It's all visuals, editing, and score. Like, there's no writing, there's no editing, there's no acting in it. There's just the the elements of it. Um, and so it creates the mood. It creates, uh, like, it kind of tells you what you should be feeling, which is not always, like, you know, sometimes it's too heavy-hitting. Like, uh, like a somewhat th- emotionally manipulative, but... Uh, yeah, like... Um, I've mentioned Steven Spielberg's War Horse before, and John Williams' score for that movie is so emotionally manipulative, um, and it's not his best. Um, in fact, I'm not even sure. I'm, I'm guessing it's John Williams, but I can't remember. But it's so it's too emotionally manipulative for me. Like I, I'm pulled out of it by going, "Oh, you want me to feel this way," and the best movies will make you do that, unco- like subconsciously. Like you'll just be feeling the same things because the score might be directing you to feel that way um and you know like every time like the superman theme comes on i feel confident you know like it's it's there's a lot of uh emotion in music um and especially if it's tied to a specific scene or uh element of a movie and so that's what i love about music is that it just kind of i feel like we can also name check a lot more composers than we can like cinematographers and editors 
it's definitely uh, the most noticeable outside of just like the directors um, in like the on the below the line sort of yeah. work the crew I guess you would say because they they play such an essential part of that um, of guiding the audience through like how they should feel in a movie and yeah we say it's emotionally manipulative but it's essential in a way and like if it's more noticeable if a film is completely silent um, or if there's a moment that's completely silent uh, and doesn't have any music or score beneath it than if there is it's it's interesting because it's like it so essential and people don't often think of it firsthand but um key elements in movies are about it's about how you feel in the scene and the way that like for example in star wars a new hope there's no music playing when obi-wan and darth vader are fighting in the death star because the way that they they filmed it is that the, the way that they wanted wanted to convey to the audience is that this is a very important moment and John Williams didn't want to do the score because he thought that the lightsabers were the score of the sound, of the movie at that point for that particular scene. So he was like, I'm not going to do that. And then two movies later, he does a very theatrical um, score for the scene between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader facing off in the Emperor's throne room in Return of the Jedi. And that's the first time that John Williams uses vocals in his score for the Star Wars movies, which become a signature theme in his prequels. Um, you know, it's... It, he he kind of does the opposite because he knows that this is a much more theat- it's father and son facing off for the final time. One of them is going to win, one of them isn't, and you know he it was it was time to kind of bring out the big guns and show like this is like the most dramatic moment in the entire Star Wars saga to that at that point is that scene. So it has to have all the drama and, and that you can muster. So he brought in like vocals and you know swelling music and very like powerful powerful music um I keep going back to John Lee just because he's one of my favorite composers but like that's like yeah you like the amount of music you have in your movie is also like the lack of music also is also important like moments will not have music and that's a there's a reason why you know there's like it'll be like for because the director is like drawing your attention like the the whole film is drawing your attention away from like the music to this moment like this moment is important and then the bringing back of music like uh th- there's a scene um in a new hope and the battle of yavin when there's no music for like 10 minutes and then the and music comes back in and it's a very dramatic moment where i think uh luke skywalker loses his friend biggs in the in the death star attack run and so like the music comes back and then suddenly like the stakes are much more real um so it's all about the timing of the music as well as the music itself yeah um i love film scores i just want to like give a shout out to a few of my favorites because like i love them i own so many um and i am a person who if i'm like reading or doing homework i have to have music like i have to have background music and it always has to be like non-lyrical um and so i listen to a lot of classical music but i also listen to a lot of film scores um and so, like, I really love scores for period films because they usually are most similar to classical music. Um, and I really love, like, the music of Pride and Prejudice and Atonement, those, like, really beautiful, like, pianos. Um, or I love strings in film scores. Um, and two of my other favorites is Lord of the Rings, which Howard Shore's score is, I mean, epic. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's speaking of like late motifs, like there are so many in that those that trilogy, and they're all gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and, and the I Hobbit movies weren't great, but they did have some good good. Yeah, some scores. of the scores in that was was good, even though the movies weren't as good as the first trilogy. Yeah. Um, and I could listen to those scores just all the time, every day, and I probably do. And <laughs> I was in Norway uh, ten years ago. We were going up the coast of Norway, and I would listen to the Lord of the Rings music like as on the cruise and we'd be like looking at the mountains it was so great moments um yeah and i also um i remember when morricone was announced to be doing the score for the hateful eight and i like lost my shit because i was so excited and turns out i had reason to be because the hateful eight score is amazing 
and I love what Morricone does in that film with suspense and themes. So those are just some of my favorites. Film scores are great. Film scores are amazing. I do the same thing. I listen to them all the time when I'm doing work or just, you know, lounging around. What about you, HT? Do you have any favorite scores or composers? Um, so my favorite is probably uh, Joe Hisaishi, for th- who has composed all of uh, the scores for Hayao Miyazaki's films and Studio Ghibli films. Uh, I listen to a, I really listen to the, a lot of the the Lost soundtrack from Michael Giacchino, but Joe Hisaishi is the composer that stands the most out to me. And I think we should give a shout out to a lot of the composers for anime films and for. Uh, Asian films that don't get as widely appreciated as uh, John Williams or as uh, or like um, Hans Zimmer, for example. And uh, Hisaishi, his scores are um, definitely a little bit more sort of whimsical and sort of more light, but they really get to that core of like the Miyazaki films, which are all about the sort of vivacity and uh, the passion for life. And it's it's so. They're, they always make me feel so warm and comforted. I think it's also his scores that I associate a lot with like my childhood because I grew up watching uh, Miyazaki films. Um, but, for example, one of the best scores um, is during the train uh, scene in Spirited Away. And that is a yes. scene that is completely silent except for Joe Hisaishi's score. And it is, it, it is a score that manages to sort of inflicts on, on you this whole range of emotions. Um, and that's, I think, and it, nothing really happens in the scene. It's just of um, Chihiro standing, sitting in the train and staring out the window as people mill about and these sort of spirits um, walk, lumber through like the trains and, and these stations. And uh, this is like, there's just like this wistful, uh, melancholic score throughout the scene that gives you uh, I can't really an inexplicable emotion. I feel like it's something that that makes you feel very bittersweet and sad, but also I don't know. It's that's the that's like the core of what music scores are for me. They just like give you these emotions that you never really thought you could experience um, from watching a film or watching a certain scene, um, and they. They really do guide you in that way, um, and I don't think it's emotionally manipulative as as it is like tapping into the emotions that were already ready, readily available to be manipulated. <laughs> so yeah, That's yeah. A great. it works. Yes. It, like music works in tandem with the rest of the film to bring you. A, a better experience yeah. and bringing out emotion because that's what film is. It's yeah. emotion. Exactly. Yeah, also, shout, uh, shout out to Alan Menken for some of the same oh, reasons that H.T. was saying for like nostalgia and childhood because like, his mm-hmm. Disney scores, some of them are really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I, and also, Hans Zimmer, I, I, I always forget that he did it, but he did the Lion King mm-hmm, score. Mm-hmm. He did. And um, it's so different than what he's, he does now, but it's so like embedded in my life like if i hear it i'll I'll like tear up like no yeah. matter what like no matter what's what what um song it all what track it is off of the score like i'll just like tear up because yeah. like it, the movie's so important to me i think that that's the thing about music scores is that they last longer than the movie itself like mm-hmm. you can listen to a score over and over again many more times than you'll ever like i've i've listened to the transformer scores more than i've ever listened to them watch the movies because the scores for those movies are actually a lot better than the movies themselves. <laughs> so Fair. like you know like i listened to the pirates of the caribbean oh like, man that first film score the first film score oh, is great because it's, so it's done good. by klaus Baudet as well as hans zimmer and then I've hans played... zimmer takes takes those those uh, themes and second and third movies brings it tenfold but like that first i pl- Again, going back to band, like we played the Pirates of the Caribbean, so we played like a medley of songs in band. So did my high school. It was so <laughs> like great. every high school theme, like, yeah. And it was so great, and like um, you know, the Pirates theme is so iconic, uh, even though the movies have gone downhill. But like that theme uh, is still so iconic, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's it's it. You know, like we have lasting impressions of movies. But I think the fact that, A, you can also buy movie soundtrack, like, separately from the film itself. So you can listen to them when you're not watching the movie. So, like, you might associate music scores with the movie, but also, like, with something in your life. Like, I, I associate the uh, 2009 Star Trek um, soundtrack not only with the movie, but also uh, 
the summer before my senior year and like like kind of like going into senior year and like like associating it with like not rebirth but like almost like the the end of one period of my life and the beginning of another and like senior year was that moment so like the characters going from the uh, Starfleet Academy into real life was kind of like what I was doing was I was going into high school going from high school into college so like that senior year like that summer and then that senior year was kind of like scored to uh, the Star Trek's uh, like soundtrack mm-hmm. so like you know you associate music with not only the movies that they're part of but also parts of your life yeah. and I th- and then that brings you closer to the movie itself I think agreed so I want to I have a question for you guys what do you yes. think of I this is something that I've sort of noticed recently but I feel like there's been uh there've been fewer sort of iconic and recognizable themes or elite motifs in films lately there's sort of like this movement uh towards like the the moody uh, synth, synth heavy or like bass heavy themes that don't quite have the same sweeping um, aura as like a John Williams theme from the 80s or even Hans Zimmer's older work with The Lion King. Like we were talking a little bit about how Hans Zimmer has changed um, a lot in the past decade. I think it, it has to do with really his uh, collaborations with, with Christopher Nolan, which kind of don't really have that iconic sweeping themes anymore. Um, we don't have something for the new Batman films, for example, that have that same um, sort of uh, punch as, like, Danny Elfman's theme in the first Batman film. So, like, what what do you think of that sort of shift in mu- movie scores? Do you think that shift is happening? I definitely do think that shift is happening because I tried to listen to the Man of Steel soundtrack, and there's, like, two songs I can listen to where it actually has, like, the Man of Steel theme, and then everything else is just mood. And I'm like, that's not, that's not great. Um, I like having themes, and I think that Hans Zimmer does have themes in the Dark Knight movies. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not as explicit as like the Indiana Jones theme or like even the Pirates of the Caribbean theme. Um, but I definitely agree. Like the Blade Runner twenty forty nine soundtrack, which was done by Hans Zimmer as well as a couple other people uh, who collaborated with him, um, it's very moody and very. Um, there's no real iconic theme. Unlike the first movie, which had an iconic, like, little, like, leitmotif of, like, um, like, uh, if you hear it, you'll know it. I can't replicate it. Ha, <laughs> replicate. Um, but it shows up at a, a very key moment at the end of the Blade Runner 2049, and that kind of struck me that, oh, everything else was just kind of mood music. There wasn't really ever a theme to Blade Runner 2049, um... So like yeah, so like a lot of movies nowadays, like Arrival is a very moody music that was um, done by Johan Johansson, and like that's there's no real like explicit like love theme from Arrival or like alien theme from Arrival. Like a lot of older soundtracks would have like this is the love theme or like this is the action theme or this is the you know uh, adventure theme. Like uh, I think yeah, you're you're right. Ht, there's going there's they're closer towards like just like mood music which i'm okay with like if you're if the move if it suits it well but sometimes you can't always listen to it independently of the movie yeah because it won't be as it won't be as uh enveloping mm-hmm. as like uh other other scores but i do think that michael Giacchino uh, uh is able to do a perfect blend of doing themes as well as mood music and like kind of just like guide you through a scene anya what do yes. you think yeah, I I agree. Um and I think it also just has to do with the trend in movies that we're seeing and um I almost associate I don't know if it's going to sound weird, but I almost associate the themes and the sweeping scores that you're talking about with the optimism that we've sort of lost in movies and that movies are becoming more cynical and more moody and grittier and I think that is a big reason why the scores are changing so much. Um you know, we still have, like, John Williams themes in, like, the new Star Wars movies. Like, Ray's theme is really beautiful, but, like... Oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah, but those are kind of the exception now, and um, maybe it's just me pushing back against the cynicism of movies that I'm seeing more and more these days, but, you know, I miss feeling 
swept up and everything. Um, and I see you nodding your head, so I think you agree with the whole cynicism aspect. Um, yeah. And it's a shame, really. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, I miss having an iconic theme to which I can instantly recognize and associate with a certain character or a certain moment. I was watching uh, E.T. recently, and just the way that John Williams structures his scores around like the most emotional or the most just grand moments almost had me welling up. I was like, I miss that when blockbusters or uh family movies did this like at the uh, like now when i watch a family movie or just a blockbuster movie i don't really feel that same connection with the characters with the movie that i did with like that that time rewatching et i'm like oh yeah so i i definitely think that it should return for movies like superhero genre for example i feel i understood what Christopher Nolan was doing with like the Dark Knight with Batman Begins and not having a specific iconic theme, even though there are rec- unrecognizable uh, recurring motifs throughout the film. Um, and I feel like people are kind of aping that, like Zack Snyder especially, and, and uh, whoever his uh, composer was, who had a really strange name. Uh, Junkie XL? Yes, that guy. Junkie um, uh, XL did the music for Mad Max too. Oh, yeah. Fury Road. Oh, wait, the, the Mad Max soundtrack Mad is Mad Max amazing. soundtrack is good. But I just, I I miss having, um, you know, that one iconic theme. Wonder Woman, uh, Hans Zimmer brought it back for Wonder Woman with um, Is She With You? And they brought it in, into her uh, solo film. And I wonder if that's like a return to that optimism like you were saying, Anya. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> so, and you know what's funny is that with the Marvel movies, there's no real theme that... I mean, there's, like, a couple themes that, that go through the movies. <coughs> um, you've got the Captain America theme from the first movie that follows him through at least to Winter Soldier. I don't know if it's in Civil War. I can't remember. Um, but And then Michael Giacchino did a really good job doing Doctor Strange and Spider-Man Homecoming. He did themes for both of them. Um, like iconic like moments like you're like oh this is the Doctor Strange theme or this is the so the, the Spider-Man theme so like there's now um, for those characters there's that but like with Thor and with um, uh, Iron Man they have themes for the movies but they don't follow them into different movies like the Thor theme by Patrick Doyle in the first so Thor is very amazing like I love it but it doesn't follow him into the other movies yeah and the same thing goes for the first Iron Man movie there's a great, um, the like Iron the Iron Man score is one of my favorite scores of the last fifteen years. Uh, it's done by the same guy who does Game of Thrones, um, and that those themes never did not follow into his the later movies and the later like moments that Iron Man shows up. Um, Iron Man two has a different theme. Iron Man three probably has the second my second favorite Iron Man theme that is more cohesive throughout the movie, but that doesn't, again, doesn't follow him. And then Avengers has a theme, but that's kind of it. So, like, it's a weird, like, they have, like, they kind of half-ass it, but I think now they're going to try probably coordinate more, like, when characters show up, like, oh, these are the Guardians of the Galaxy, or, or the, oh, these are the Avengers, these, here's Spider-Man, like, now, and here's Doctor Strange. So, like, now there's probably going to be more cohesiveness to it, but I think starting out, they didn't really know I mean, I don't even think they knew they were going to get this far. Yeah, but. yeah. I wonder. I wonder if like the the decrease of recognizable themes um, and sort of more emotional themes is a uh, sort of related to the increase of needle drops. You know, the needle drop that we've Possibly, seen in yeah. like Guardians of the Galaxy or Baby Driver or Atomic Blonde. It's becoming incredibly prevalent recently, and they're much more recognizable because, like, they're pop songs, and um, they just they show up or rock songs, for example. They're popular songs, and they um, they become as much part of the score and the soundtrack as uh, you know classic themes that we've had. Yeah, yeah. Like Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy had a theme, like, but it's not as famous as the soundtrack. You know, like. If you listen to the, or you watch the movie, or you listen to the the score, like there's a clear Guardians theme, but that's over, always overshadowed by uh, Uga Chaga, Uga Chaga. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right, you guys have any final thoughts? Um, we clearly uh, love that I love the line cinema. And I just love cinema, and this is great. Like, I'm so glad we got to talk about all this, all this stuff. All right. I think that's a great way to wrap up our discussion on Below the Line. I think we know the title for our episode. <laughs> um, 
Let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. So, Willoughby, why don't you start us off? What do you really like this week? Um, the Black Panther trailer is really good, guys. They came out with a new one on Monday, uh, and it's so well done. It showcases all the characters without giving away much of the plot, and kind of gives you a good tone of what the movie's going to feel like. It's directed by Ryan Coogler, um who did Creed, who did uh, Fruitvale Station. So, like, he's bringing something different to the Marvel Universe than we've seen before. And so I'm very excited to see, like, this movie, and it's got me so hyped for it. It's gonna Um, be epic. Yeah. And I hope they play it in front of Thor Ragnarok, because that that would just be, like, a perfect, like, combination. Yes. They're also probably gonna release an Avengers Infinity War trailer soon, because that comes out in May. Oh, my God. uh, I want to hear it. I want to... for the record state, I've noticed that Marvel has always had a pattern of releasing their May movies, their trailers, in October or November. So we're probably going to get uh, the first Infinity War trailer within a couple weeks. That's wild. Not ready. Awesome. Yep. Uh, yeah, so the Black, Panther, the Black Panther trailer is uh, is what I really, really liked. All right. Um, Anya, what do you really like this week? Alright, I have something kind of less, like, timely, less something that's, like, happening right now, um, but do you guys ever, like, tap back into something that you've always loved and just kind of, like, maybe not rediscover your love for it, but just, like, you know, replenish your love for it, you yes. know, revive it again? Mm-hmm. Yes, so I've that's been doing me, that- that's me 24-7. <laughs> I've been doing that lately um, with Mumford & Sons, mm-hmm. um, who's one of my favorite bands of all time. Yes, the banjo. Willoughby was doing the banjo movements. Um, I've seen them in concert. Uh, I love them very much. They're one of, like, the few musical groups that I actually, like, follow the career of. Um, And so, like, my love has never gone away for them. Um, But lately I've been listening to their albums again, just, like, from start to finish. And, like, really just kind of, like, diving back into it um, fully. And just kind of tapping back into that passionate love I have for them and I think that they are just one of the greatest bands right now and Marcus Mumford's uh, musical abilities and his singing just always gets me and so I've just really been loving Mumford and Sons again. Um, I have to admit I do have a bit of a soft spot for like indie folk and like that whole genre of music. Like give me indie folk, film scores, or girl pop and that's where like my music (laughs) (laughs) interests lie. (laughs) Um... So, yeah, so Mumford and Sons, just, like, always love them. But, like, lately I've been really getting into them again. Awesome. Uh, Speaking of return to a thing that I've loved, uh, this isn't something that's quite happened yet, but it's something I'm looking forward to. Uh, Philip Pullman has published his prequels, the first of his prequel series to the His Dark Materials trilogy, which was one of my favorite, if not my favorite, uh, series ever as a kid. Uh, so it's the first, the Belle, La Belle Sauvage is the first volume of the Book of Dust series, which is supposed to be a prequel to the His Dark Material, which was um, the Golden Compass, the um, Subtle Knife, and the okay. Amber Spyglass. Uh, I read this series way back when, I think like in the fifth or sixth grade, so much so that I pronounced Subtle Subtle when I first oh. <laughs> when I first read it, um, yeah, it's such a great series about uh, kind of an anti Christianity series actually, but it's a really interesting sci fi um, fantasy novel that kind of delves into uh, ideas about like dark matter and existentialism and sort of like this sort of what if scenarios and it's a beautifully written just great book that I have, great series that I have not read again recently, but I used to reread every year because I loved it so much. Actually, the first time I reread it was because I didn't understand it, and I was like, I don't know what just happened in that series. I'm going to reread it until I do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then it became sort of a tradition for me to reread it until I think I was in middle school and I stopped doing that. Um, But yeah, I'm very excited for The Book of Dust, which is getting rave reviews. Uh, Anya (laughs) sent me the link to the New York Times review, um, I think, that uh, when it got published on Friday, and she's like, it's the best, it's 
is the best since like the trilogy <laughs> blah, blah. We we're, we're very both, excited we're, for it we're both geeking out it was very exciting um so i can't wait to read it i am going on a trip soon to thailand and i'm definitely going to buy it for my long 16 hour flight and probably finish it um even though it's hardcover i don't care i'm gonna bring no. it on a plane <laughs> uh, do so anything yeah, with pullman I'm excited to return to the world of uh, Lyra and demons and um, dark matter and uh, dust. So and polar bear, right? Yeah, well, there polar yeah there were I've polar bears. There's talk polar so bears. Good. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's great. Such a good series. It's so good. Ah. Um, the po- too bad it got botched in the movie adaptation, but yeah. You know. But now there's a new TV adaptation in the works. Yes, so and exactly. I think he's like working on it. Like he's part of it. So mm-hmm. that'll so, be good. Yeah. That's why I really like cool. this week. All right. Awesome. Well, if anyone out there has any thoughts on Below the Line People in Hollywood, uh, the Black Panther trailer, Mumford and Sons, or Philip Pullman's new His Dark Material series, definitely come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're on SoundCloud, where you can listen to us, when you, and we're also on iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe, so please do. And um, where can they find you guys? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye! Bye.